The time is now six o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Monday, January 8th, 2024. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Sam Swartz. In tonight's news... The City of Madison plans to investigate how art could make roadways safer. Fitchburg is hosting a tabletop tournament with the opportunity to qualify for the World Championship in Illinois. A captain with the Madison Police Department discusses the new hate crime task force. And in the second half, words from the Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist, a birthday celebration, and two movie reviews. This is Sam Swartz and Rachel Fields with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in beautiful downtown Madison. In an interview with the Associated Press, Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers said that he believes that former President Trump should be allowed to be on the ballot for the presidential election in November. Trump has been barred from being on the ballot in Colorado and Maine due to his participation in an insurrection and his refusal to participate in a peaceful transfer of power after losing to President Biden in 2020. A new lawsuit was filed in Wisconsin on Friday asking that Trump be removed from the ballot in the state as well, although the person bringing the suit admitted it was unlikely to succeed. Trump has asked that the United States Supreme Court review the decision to bar him from the ballot, a matter the court has not addressed since the aftermath of the Civil War. Republican legislators at the Wisconsin Capitol announced today that they would be proposing legislation that would create five state-run medical marijuana dispensaries that would allow the drug to be used by individuals with severe chronic conditions that were prescribed the doc- that were prescribed the drug by the doctor. Previously, Governor Evers had introduced a provision back in 2023 state budget that would have legalized marijuana for both medical and recreational use, with the Republicans stripping the provision from the final version. Nevertheless, Governor Evers has signaled that he is likely to pass the new legislation as long as it doesn't contain any poison pills for Democrats, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The legislators say they hope to pass the measure in the coming months and then send the legislation on the onto the governor for approval. Make sure to bundle up tomorrow. A large winter storm is expected to come to southern Wisconsin starting tomorrow. And that storm could bring up to nine inches of snow to the area, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The storm has caused a swath of cancellations and postponements across the region as institutions brace for road closures and wintry conditions. The City of Madison announced this evening that all non-essential city services will be closed. That means your trash won't be picked up, so don't put it out. And other places like the library, the clerk's office, and so on will also be closed. One service that will be out in force? Plowing services, which will be active intermittently throughout the storm. However, the city warned that plows would not reach residential neighborhoods until after the storm passes, most likely on Wednesday, which could result in some people being snowed in and unable to drive. Meanwhile, Madison Metro says it plans on operating a normal bus schedule, and all services are expected to resume by Wednesday. The Milwaukee public school system has missed a January deadline imposed by state lawmakers to place 25 police officers into schools, reports the Milwaukee State Journal. 
The controversial measure was part of a mandate from Act 12, a new state law passed last summer that imposed specific requirements on the city of Milwaukee as part of a legislative package that allowed the municipal governments to raise sales taxes. The measure was met with resistance from the Milwaukee School Board, who had previously removed police officers from inside their schools in 2016 as part of an effort to avoid unnecessarily arresting and disciplining students. One of the issues at hand is the funding for that position. The state has offered no extra money to the school district to provide the new positions, which are expected to cost the school district an estimated $2 million. The district says that it is working on a plan to roll out the police officers, although no plan has been forthcoming. It is unclear what kind of consequences the state could impose on the district if it chooses not to comply with the mandate. A former employee of the St. Croix Chippewa Housing Authority was sentenced to a year in federal prison in a decision handed down last Thursday. The employee was found guilty of embezzling more than $200,000 from the tribal agency, mostly by writing false checks for contract work that was never completed and then cashing the checks herself. The agency is responsible for providing housing for low-income members of the St. Croix Chippewa Indians and has received more than $1 million worth of grants from the federal government. The Madison Metropolitan School District announced last week that its search for a new superintendent had drawn nearly 60 applicants. The job search, which was posted in late November, is heading into its final rounds of interviews, and the district is accepting applications for people interested in serving on a panel for interviewing candidates in their last round of interviews. The panel will be selected by random lottery, with interviewers required to attend training sessions in late January and early February. In addition, the district is soliciting community feedback on what kinds of questions should be asked in those interviews, reports the Capital Times. Final interviews will be recorded and live-streamed on February 6th and 7th, with a final selection expected later in February. Two different projects in Madison that are converting hotels into affordable housing have come up against a quirk of Wisconsin law that requires every unit in an apartment complex be individually metered for electricity, reports the Capital Times. On Madison's east side, the development company Republic has been converting the former Plaza Hotel into housing units, but hotel units are not individually metered, meaning that the company would have to install individual meters as part of their renovation. They have decided to move forward with their renovation without installing meters, despite being informed by Madison Gas and Electric that the meters would be required, hoping for a waiver from the state's Public Service Commission. Similarly, a plan to convert the Super 8 Hotel on Madison's east side into apartments has applied for a waiver, although it is much earlier in the renovation process. The law requiring individual metering was enacted in the aftermath of the energy crisis during the 1970s, when high energy costs were high and most construction had not taken electricity bills into account, leading leaving residents feeling powerless to address their costs. The Public Service Commission says that it has received an increase in waiver requests for the law as construction has gotten more energy efficient, although that does not mean that exceptions apply in these cases. The 2024 Madison School Board elections will consist of two incumbents running unopposed, reports the Capital Times. A spokesperson for the Madison Metropolitan School District said that by the January 2nd deadline, only Maya Pearson and Savion Castro had applied to run in the April election. 
The election is for two seats on the board, seats one and two, so the election will be uncontested. The school board is likely to face an eventful 2024, including a possible push to put budget increases on the November ballot in the face of a deep structural deficit. Those were the headlines, and now on to the rest of today's top stories. Last month, the city of Madison received just over $6 million in federal funds for road safety projects. One of those projects will be a pilot to add art to road asphalt in an effort to have drivers pay more attention to the road, and that art could be coming to a high-traffic area near you. WORT News producer Faye Parks has the details. Murals, colorful crosswalks, painted overpasses, those are just some examples of asphalt art. And according to a 2022 report from Bloomberg Philanthropies, the art doesn't just add color to urban areas. It can also make busy streets safer for pedestrians and cyclists. Analyzing crash rates before and after asphalt art projects were installed, the report found a 50% decrease in pedestrian and cyclist-involved car crashes. The city of Madison is hoping to replicate those findings in a new pilot program as part of a city initiative to reduce severe injuries and deaths on roads, bike paths, and sidewalks. That program is called Vision Zero. Last month, the city received $6.3 million in federal funds to make the city's streets safer. Renee Calloway is Madison's pedestrian bicycle administrator. She says they've been working to implement Vision Zero since 2020, when the city saw an uptick in speeding and other dangerous behavior behind the wheel. However, We still continue to be one of the urban areas that has fewer pedestrian crashes nationally. Callaway says Madison's Vision Zero primarily focuses on low-cost, high-impact projects. Maybe adding a flashing beacon light at an intersection or kind of bumping out the curb at an intersection. You know, those are the types of projects that we do all the time, and this federal funding will just kind of allow us to do more of those projects on a faster scale. And Asphalt Art is one of those projects with a $69,000 budget. That money will cover the artist's fee, installation, and community engagement. Callaway says that street art can remind drivers to be more vigilant. Maybe to give a visual extension to a curb or sort of different clues like that and really have an impact on driver behavior through that visual clue. A 2014 city ordinance on decorative street painting does allow asphalt art, though there are a number of conditions. Under city rules, any project requires a permit and approval by the city traffic engineer and designs are limited to decorative designs and patterns only. Plus, it's been limited to residential streets and the State Street Mall. The pilot program is aimed at testing an expansion of road art to high traffic areas. So far, no word yet on where the pilot program will focus. Callaway says a few locations are slated to be proposed in the coming months. At the end of the pilot, a final report will head to the Transportation Commission and, potentially, lead to more ordinance changes. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Two weekends from now, in a galaxy not so far away, a Fitchburg game store will host a Star Wars Legion tournament. The winner will go on to have a shot at the World Championships. For more, we turn to WORT reporter Charlie Bielowski. Star Wars Legion is a tabletop game that features some of the franchise's familiar factions, Republic clone troopers, battle droids, rebel soldiers, and the Empire's stormtroopers. 
The game, created in 2018 by Fantasy Flight Games, uses miniatures, cards, and dice to reenact the iconic battles from the Star Wars franchise. Since its conception, the game has seen tournaments around the world. Top competitors can win prizes to upgrade their armies or get unique dice and measurement tools. On Saturday, January 20th, Noble Knight Games in Fitchburg will host its first in-person Star Wars Legion tournament since the COVID pandemic. Nicholas Schott is the event coordinator. Pre-COVID, we had tournaments in the area, but during COVID, most of these tournaments moved to an online resource while we weren't able to play in person. So this is kind of us starting back up uh, for the first time. This is the second time we're running a tournament at Noble Knight. We timed it with the new Worlds invite system that AMG Games is starting. So this tournament actually is a World Invite tournament. The winner will get a, they will have uh, the ability to join the World Tournament at Adepticon in March. The winner at the Noble Knights game tournament will move on to the World Championships with the opportunity to skip the first day qualifier. This year, Adepticon is hosting the championships in Schaumburg, Illinois. Adepticon is a large event where thousands of tabletop enthusiasts from around the world can meet to cosplay their favorite characters, compete in painting competitions, engage in official tournaments of their favorite tabletop games, and enjoy their favorite hobby with other like-minded individuals. Star Wars Legion is just one of the many games they host. Zach Lovedahl plans to bring his clone troopers to the Fitchburg tournament. I mostly play Rebels, but I've been uh, trying out the Republic lately because, you know, I've always liked the clones. I think they're fun, and I, you know, love the Clone Wars series. I mean, Star Wars is super fun, so I need to, I was kind of looking for an excuse to have, like, you know, Star Wars 40K. You know, I played X-Wing before, which was, you know, a blast, but, you know, that was like for the game, it was, uh, fun but not exactly what I was looking for anymore and then you know Legion came along and it was fun it, it's uh, for me it's so fun being cinematic about it I guess I'm not sure I just kind of saw here's local tournament uh come test your metal and that, that's all I needed <laughs> I, I like a good challenge Zach's friend Zach Reynolds also plans to compete he has already managed to clinch a spot in the Star Wars X-Wing tournament and hopes to do the same for Star Wars Legion on the 20th I'm actually pretty excited it's going to be my first tournament in the game this tournament, I will be playing the Rebels, uh, though I have been very seriously waffling between them and the Grand Army of the Republic, just because I'm a little bit more solid on the mechanics of the Republic, but I know that the list that I play is maybe a, a, a B-rank sort of list, and it's a known quantity, so if I bring it in, you know, everyone's going to say, oh, well, that's Anakin and Padme and a bunch of clones, and I know how to deal with that. And being a new player, I figure this also probably be this rebel uh, force that I have is going to be a little bit more in my favor just because it's not in the meta and no one really knows how to deal with it relative to what its strengths are. The Fitchburg tournament currently has 19 players signed up with room for 26 and the entry fee is $20. The winner will move on to compete with 255 others from around the world at the World Championship. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Charlie Bielowski. Last week, the Madison Police Department launched a hate crimes task force. The 90-day task force seeks to address bias-motivated threats, harassment, and violence using a more centralized report, as hate crimes in Wisconsin have nearly doubled in recent years. For more on the task force, WORT News producer Faye Parks spoke with Daniel Nail, captain of NPD's investigative services that is leading the task force. Thank you for joining me, Captain Nail. Yes, you bet. 
to start, could you just describe for us what the investigative services are at MPD? What are your primary goals and functions? Uh, investigative services at MPD is separate from detectives that work at the district stations. So we have detective units here at the central district station, specifically for violent crime. We have a violent crime unit. We have a burglary crime unit. We have a special victims unit. And I also oversee the gang and neighborhood crime abatement team along with the criminal intelligence section and have some supervisory authority over the Dane County Narcotics Task Force as well. And so MPD's Hate Crimes Task Force launched last Wednesday. Can you give us the rundown on this new program? Typically, those crimes are handled at a district level. So what we're doing is we're trying to increase information flow and communications among the districts and also in investigative services. So we're bringing in the detective lieutenants from the six police districts and then also with the detective lieutenants and myself from investigative services to discuss these cases and try to have more of a centralized approach to how we investigate them and dispose them to the district attorney's office if that's appropriate. This task force right now, it's been designated to run for 90 days. Is this sort of just a trial period to see how it would work? Yes, I believe so. And so what are the main things that you'll be looking for over the next few months? I can tell you what we'll be looking for is more collaboration amongst the districts and investigative services in particular, because investigative services has never really handled these type of calls before, these type of investigations. So we're going to look at all the collaborations amongst the detectives and detective lieutenants and just kind of describing what cases we're seeing what potential follow-up could be done, and then how we'd be able to potentially advocate for prosecution of these cases if they would warrant. Part of the task force will also involve a little bit of community outreach as well, so we're uh, involving our core unit and the lieutenant involved with core, as well as our public information officer to maybe message things out if we see fit as well. It's going to be a little bit of American progress, but I think we have a pretty solid foundation on how to move forward. When you mention outreach, what exactly would that look like? Just informing people what a hate crime is or what your function will be? It's not really going to be my decision or purview. I, I would think that both of those things would be involved in that, yes. But it, I guess it could involve even more aspects. Do you plan on getting any kind of community feedback? What would that look like? Well, again, that would probably be a function of our community outreach yet. Uh, so I don't want to speak to them, you know, what they would want to do in that regard. However, I do know that we have messaging software that we get out to crime victims. That's on a daily basis with our patrol officers. We could potentially do community surveys uh, in that regard. I'm curious, too, how frequently does Madison see crimes that could be prosecuted as hate crimes? Is this something that happens fairly commonly in our community? I wouldn't say it's common, and I, I don't have access to up-to-date records on how many have been reported to the department and how many have been referred to the district attorney's office for prosecution. Unfortunately, I'd have to refer you to our records department for that exact information. But I don't know occur. And I also think that there has been an uptick in the last couple of years. I, I guess I don't, I don't have proof of that in front of me as far as records necessarily, but I think what, what the chief is looking to do in this situation, it certainly can't hurt. And better communication amongst investigators will certainly hopefully bring better outcomes to victims of these type of incidents moving forward. You mentioned that a big function of this task force is to make the investigations more centralized. 
What have the effects been in the past to not have a sort of central location where investigations are run? Well, one of the types of crimes we've seen things that have crossed district boundaries and, you know, one district group of detectives might not know what another district is dealing with. That's fairly common with violent offenses in particular, which is one of the reasons we went to the, the VCU model back in 2015, I believe it was. And it's possible that we might see patterns of these type of cases that transcend our traditional district boundaries. It would make it simpler to keep track of things and help the detectives collaborate with one another. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think keeping track is probably, that'll be a bonus, but it's not that I don't think we've kept good track of them before. It's just, but it would definitely be added of what you said as far as detectives being able to collaborate amongst each other a little bit better. So what exactly are the next steps? It sounds like there's going to be a 90-day trial period. Could the task force potentially be extended past that? Well, I think it's definitely possible if we think there's a need for it. But as far as the next steps are concerned, we're, we're setting up regular meetings at a command level, at least. For lieutenants and above, we're going to be discussing what districts are seeing and what they're assigning to their detectives and kind of making a plan moving forward. Say this task force is extended past 90 days. What would be some long-term goals? The long-term goal would be to try to get to a point where you know, we don't have these type of crimes occurring. I don't know if that's too lofty or better. So I, I think some lesser goals would be to try to get each district or each investigative team on the same page as to what we're looking for in these cases and what is the best way to go about investigating them, what's the best way to go about packaging something to the district attorney's office that has the best chance for prosecution, what are the messages we can get to the community about the work that we're doing and or, you know, what constitutes a hate crime, what constitutes freedom of speech which I think some people sometimes confuse the two. I should add, it's easily confusable. So yeah, I think those would be some of the the more achievable goals, maybe. And is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? I don't know at this time. I know that if you think you have experienced either a hate crime or know of someone else that has experienced a hate crime, to, to definitely report it to us. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Captain Nail. Yeah, you bet. That was Captain Daniel Nail of the Madison Police Department's Investigative Services. Last Wednesday, they launched their Hate Crimes Task Force, which will undergo evaluation after 90 days. Captain Nail says, long term, they're hoping to counter the recent uptick in hate crimes in our community. But right now, they're hoping that taking a more centralized approach to hate crime investigation will help law enforcement collaborate across the city. Your time right now is 6.33 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Earlier today, WORT host Brian Standing spoke to Pulitzer Prize-winning photographer Deanne Fitzmaurice. She'll be in Madison next week speaking at the Overture Center's Changemaker Speaker Series.
Microbiologist Luis Pastor once said that fortune favors the well-prepared. That motto applies equally well to photojournalism. Just ask Pulitzer Prize-winning photographer Diane Fitzmaurice, who has for 20 years plus covered wars, natural disasters, politics, and sports for the San Francisco Chronicle, National Geographic, and Sports Illustrated, among other outlets. Deanne Fitzmaurice will be speaking as part of the Madison Overture Center's Change Maker Speaker Series on Tuesday, January 16th, with a talk entitled, Luck is a State of Mind. Deanne Fitzmaurice joins us now by phone. Welcome to the 8 o'clock buzz. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for getting up early uh, out there in California for joining us. So I know it's, uh, I know it's an early morning for you. It is early. That's okay, though. <laughs> so, um, tell us, how did you get started in photojournalism? What was the? Did you start in in different type of photography and then sort of move into the journalistic aspect of it, or was this something that you'd always wanted to do? I started at art school, and I wanted to be a artist. I wanted to be a painter. So I was going to the Academy of Art in San Francisco, taking lots of different classes. And after a while, I realized I'm not that good at this. (laughs) And I didn't really have the patience for it. You know, sitting in my studio um, alone, it was just, it didn't feel like it connected well with me. So I started taking other classes and I took a photography class and I, all of a sudden, my world just opened up and I'm thinking, wow, I could actually make a living as a photographer. And I started taking every kind of photography class I could, you know, studio portraiture, architectural photography, you know, you name it. And I took a photojournalism class and I got so excited. I'm thinking, wow, I can get paid to go to concerts and events. (laughs) (laughs) But, but then it wasn't until later that I realized the power of photojournalism to bring attention to issues, to spark emotion, to move people, and to create change. And so um, talk a little bit about the uh, series that you did for the San Francisco Chronicle that ended up winning you the Pulitzer Prize. Was that, uh, uh, tell, us, tell us about that series and how you got involved in it. Yeah, sure. It was during the Iraq war and I was on staff at the Chronicle and my editor came walking in and said, Deanne, we want you to go out to Children's Hospital and do a story, a one day story for tomorrow's paper about this little boy who's just been severely injured and miraculously through an incredible series of circumstances brought to America for treatment. And so a writer and I went out there and we walked into the room and we just had to, you know, walk outside and just collect ourselves. So powerful what we saw and, you know, the extent of his injuries. And we went back to our editors and said, this is not just a one day story. This is much deeper. We want to show the human cost of war. We want to spend some time with this. Our editors agreed. And So I followed his story for a year. Um, It involved a trip to Iraq to meet up with his mom and his siblings as they were coming to reunite with him after not seeing him for a year. And it just, it had lots of ups and downs. And so it was a year's worth of work that won the Pulitzer. Did you have any idea Pulitzer might be in the offing when you started that project? 
Not at all. It was so far out of my realm. You know, I just, you know, I just never thought that that would be in the same sentence as my name. <laughs> um, I was just so focused on the story and what I was doing. And Pulitzer just seemed so far out of reach that, you know, they never came together in my mind. So your talk when you come to Madison is entitled, Luck is a State of Mind. What what does that exactly mean? Yeah. Um, and by the way, I'm very excited to come to Madison um, next week. Really looking forward to sharing some of my stories with the audience there. The presentation is, it's a real mix of stories. Um, just, you know, my work over the years has been very eclectic. There are some stories that will make you laugh. There are some that are heartbreaking, some that are just plain inspirational. But there has been this theme that has gone through my work over the years, and it is about just trusting that the universe will deliver, kind of putting myself in a position where things might happen. And a lot of it is just acting on that as well. For example, I get on a plane and the person sitting next to me is so interesting. We strike up a conversation and and I just out of the blue say, I want to come to Denver and tell your story, photograph your story. And then it ends up being a big story in the Washington Post. So it's it's one of those things where you know, you hope that it's going to happen and you seize the moment when it does happen. For many photographers, uh, getting your picture in the, in the National Geographic is sort of the black belt of photojournalism. Um, you've been featured in uh, the National Geographic Innovators series. Talk about um, that process and what did, and what did that mean? And how do you approach uh, an assignment like that? Yeah, well, um, yeah, it is kind of the holy grail in the world of photography for, for many of us. And it's just, you know, such an honor to be able to work with them. Um, you know, to approach an assignment like that, I, I do a lot of research. Sometimes the assignments are the publication's idea, and sometimes I'm pitching my own ideas. So it, it's a combination of those. Um, the Innovator Series, that was an assignment that came to me. But I'm always trying to do the work that's meaningful to me. And, you know, a lot of editors that I work with, they know, you know, what's in my wheelhouse, what I'm good at, and they come to me for those kind of stories. But I'm always on the lookout for, you know, compelling, interesting stories that shine a light on something in our world, um, you know, meaningful stories. Um, short, uh, stories that just kind of um, talk about this, you know, this world we're in and, you know, the things to celebrate in this world, the things to be concerned about, the things that, you know, we can be educated about. Um, yeah, so I, I go into it with um, with research, but most importantly, staying open to what unfolds naturally, because I feel like if I can, if I can think about a photo before I go on assignment, then it's just an average photo. What I'm looking for are the photos that I could not have imagined before I went out on assignment, the surprises that are revealing. 
You uh, have also, um, part of your career has also focused uh, on sports, and uh, I'm interested in your perspective as a uh, woman in the sports field. Do you feel that um, that's accessible, and are there opportunities for women in sports uh, journalism opening up? Yeah, it's changed a lot since I first started. Um, In the beginning, when I was on staff at the Chronicle, and um, you know, I was lucky because so many of the teams did really well. So I ended up going to um, Super Bowls and World Series. And, you know, in the beginning, I was one of the few women out there. But over the years, it's changed quite a bit. And, you know, I just put on my blinders and just went forward and just said that I'm going to do the work. You know, I'm just going to do the best I can and, you know, let my work speak for itself and, you know, not get bogged down by any negativity. And so I just approached it like that. And, you know, before long, you know, many of the men on the sidelines, the male photographers became my friends. And, you know, we kind of look out for each other and there's this, you know, competitive edge that we have. Of course, we want to outshoot each other, but we watch out for each other, too. I want to talk a little bit about some of your personal projects that you're working on. Uh, tell us about Brianna Noble, the urban cowgirl. Yeah, that was right in the midst of the pandemic. It was in 2020, the summer of 2020, where when all of the protests broke out nationwide over the George Floyd murder. And, you know, um, I, I saw some news coverage that there was this big protest in Oakland. And in the midst of this protest, this huge horse comes walking through with this magnificent woman on this horse. And I was so intrigued about her and what her story was. And so I started doing research and I learned that she ran a nonprofit to help young kids of color who were struggling to, um, you know, she wanted to show them confidence through horsemanship. And she was a real inspiration. And so I just reached out to her and said, I'd like to come photograph you and tell your story. Deanne Fitzmaurice's presentation, Luck is a State of Mind, takes place at Madison's Capitol Theater on Tuesday, January 16th at 7.30 p.m. For tickets and more information, go to overture.org. Deanne Fitzmaurice, thank you so much for joining us on the 8 o'clock buzz. Thank you so much, Brian. Today is the birthday of groundbreaking singer, songwriter, and social activist Joan Baez. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has her biography on today's edition of The Past Isn't Past. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. Tomorrow, January 8th, is the 82nd birthday of singer, songwriter, activist Joan Baez. Baez was born in New York City of immigrant parents. Her mom was Joan Bridge from Edinburgh, Scotland and raised in the U.S. Her dad, Albert Baez, was born in Pueblo, Mexico, but left with his family when he was two. His dad was a Methodist minister who chose to work with the poor. Albert grew up in Brooklyn 
Albert became a physicist. Joan Sr. was a stay-at-home mom with her three daughters. When the kids were young, the family joined Quaker Meeting. This was an important influence in Joan's life. She was often subject to racial slurs and discrimination while growing up. Her dad worked with UNESCO, so the family moved around a lot in the U.S. and abroad. Baez noted the strong impression of vast poverty in Iraq moved her deeply as a child. Baez opens her 1987 autobiography and a voice to sing with, saying, I was born gifted with a singing voice and a desire to share it. When Baez was 13, her aunt took her to hear Pete Seeger and she was hooked. She began practicing Pete's songs and started performing in public. They were then living in the San Francisco Bay Area. She graduated from Palo Alto High School in 1958. After her graduation, her dad got a faculty job at MIT and the family moved to Boston, then the center of the growing folk music scene. Baez began performing near her house. She briefly attended Boston University. In 1958, she gave her first concert at the Club 47 in Cambridge. She was paid $10. Later, Baez met Odetta and Bob Gibson, prominent singers of folk and gospel. Gibson invited Baez to perform with him at the 1959 Newport Folk Festival, and her career took off. Baez says the core of her being is her activism. She's dedicated her life to nonviolence, civil rights, and social justice. She first heard Dr. King speak at her high school in 1956. Later, the two became friends as she performed at numerous demonstrations, most notably the March on Washington, where she sang, we shall overcome. She performed the song in Berkeley during the mid-60s free speech movement and at many anti-Vietnam War protests. In 1964, she recorded the song Birmingham Sunday. In 1997, Spike Lee used the song in the opening of the Four Little Girls doc about the girls killed in the 1963 16th Street Baptist Church bombing. In 1965, she opened a school to teach nonviolent protest and participated in the Selma to Montgomery marches for voting rights. In 1966, Baez supported Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers Union in their strike for fair wages and better working conditions. She opposed capital punishment at San Quentin during a Christmas vigil. Baez has been active with Amnesty International since its founding. In the early 70s, she devoted a full year to help establish amnesty chapters in the Bay Area. In 1964, she publicly endorsed resisting taxes by withholding 60% of her income taxes. Baez was arrested twice in 1967 for blocking the entrance of the Armed Forces Induction Center in Oakland, California, and spent over a month in jail. Dr. Martin Luther King visited her for an hour during one of her times in jail. She also sang at a free concert at the Washington Monument in D.C., where 30,000 people attended to hear her anti-war message. She joined the 1969 moratorium to end the war in Vietnam protests. In 1972, shortly before Christmas, Baez participated in a peace delegation to Hanoi to address human rights in the region and to deliver mail to American prisoners of war. She was caught in the U.S. Christmas bombing when the city was shelled for 11 straight days. She still has occasional nightmares about it. Since the late 70s, Baez has been a prominent supporter of the LGBTQ plus community. She has long worked on environmental issues, notably on Earth Day in 1999. Joining Bonnie Raitt, 
in honoring environmental activist Julia Butterfly Hill with Rates Author M. Shokat Award. In 2003, she performed at two rallies of hundreds of thousands of people in San Francisco protesting the U.S. invasion of Iraq. In 2011, she performed at a fundraiser for Occupy Wall Street. On March 18, 2011, Baez was honored by Amnesty International at its 50th anniversary meeting. She received the first Amnesty International Joan Baez Award for Outstanding Inspirational Service in the Global Fight for Human Rights. The award is to be presented to an artist, music, film, sculpture, paint, or other medium who has advanced human rights. Baez formally retired in 2019, but may still perform the odd concert near her home. There's a moving, amazingly candid new documentary out about her life. Joan Baez, I Am a Noise. I highly recommend it. And that is our story for today. For the past is the past, I'm Harry Richardson. Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies, Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom is a superhero movie on the big sc- on the big screen and Bank of Dave is a true-ish story on the small screen. He must be stopped or a global meltdown is imminent. I think I know someone might be able to help us. That was a clip from the trailer for Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, directed by James Wan. The sequel isn't as good as the original, but I still enjoyed it. Jason Momoa is back as Aquaman. He gets in some fun one-liners and some good action bits. Much of the old cast is back, though sadly not Willem Dafoe, who played Aquaman's mentor, Valko. He's died in some mysterious plague. Maybe part of the reason the film isn't as fun is that several characters don't get much to do except for brief scenes with Aquaman. Mera, Amber Heard, his spouse and queen of Atlantis, only gets a few supporting scenes. Last time, she was a compelling, powerful character in her own right. The same can be said of Atlanta Nicole Kidman. Aquaman's dad, Tamara Morrison, fares a little better as new grandpa and Aquaman's parenting advisor. The sequel's main relationship is between Aquaman and one of the least interesting characters of the last story, his defeated brother for the throne of Atlantis, Orm, Patrick Wilson, though he gets a little more personality this time around. Not holding anything back, again, is Black Mantra, a fun Yahya Abdul-Mateen. Again, our main villain. Also returning is Dr. Stephen Shin, Randall Park, as a conflicted scientist working for Black Mantra, but really just wanting to learn about Atlantis. He makes a discovery that sets our story into motion. Black Mantra is still out for revenge against Aquaman and has gained new powers. Dr. Shin also helps the Black Mantra obtain major amounts of an environment-destroying ancient ally, Oracalcum. Sound familiar? Ancient Atlantans rejected using the alloy when they discovered it was creating deadly greenhouse gases. The Black Mantra, of course, doesn't care about warming the ocean or destroying the Earth as long as he can get vengeance on Aquaman. Aquaman has settled into a routine on land, taking care of his son, and in the sea, being frustrated by Atlantean Council, who managed to block his initiatives, especially his proposal to reveal themselves to the surface world to unite the world's efforts to stop global climate change. This routine is interrupted by Black Mantra, and Aquaman needs the help of Orm. Unfortunately, Orm is imprisoned. See last episode. All in all, a fun sequel. If you like the first installment, you'll probably like this one as well. It's gotten generally low rankings by critics, 35% on Rotten Tomatoes, but 81% by audiences. Once again, I'm down with the audience. Up next, a film liked by both based on a truish story. And the customers were having problems making payments, so I started lending them my own money. This isn't about me making money. Every single penny of profit goes straight to local charities. Now a clip from the trailer for The Bank of Dave, 
directed by Chris Foggin. Based on a truish story, they made some stuff up, but that's okay. It's a feel-good movie about a community where people help each other and no one falls through the cracks. The Bank of Dave idea starts when Dave Fishwick, of the former textile northern English town of Burnley, Lancashire, decides to help out locals by forming a small community bank. All the profits would go to charities. The only problem, at least in the movie, is the British banking establishment that is afraid of the competition and afraid of the good example. Dave, a solid Rory Kinnear, is a working class guy who's built up a chain of van selling businesses and become a multi-millionaire. But Dave still goes to the same old pub where he proudly sings karaoke, goes to the same church and so on. More importantly, Dave generally likes people. Dave's idea starts small. He explains to privileged London lawyer Hugh, Joel Fry. Hugh has been sent by his boss to explain the facts of banking to Dave. Dave wanted to help out an old friend, Marine, Kathy Tyson. After the sudden loss of her husband, Dave offers to pay for the funeral, but Marine refuses, and so he loans her the money. She insists on repaying it, and having it all written up proper. So Dave, who's authorized to loan people money to buy his vans, uses one of those forms, and Marine pays him back. This becomes important later. After that, Dave makes a series of loans to friends and acquaintances. Dave decides to form a bank to fill in where the big banks have failed regular people. The story has everything, humor, sadness, love, family, loyalty. Some reviewers have compared it to Local Hero, 1983, a great Scottish movie with Burt Lancaster. That's a pretty good comparison, but Local Hero is much better. Both are well worth your time. Bank of Dave just started playing on Netflix. Local Hero is on Vudu, Apple, and other streaming services. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks so much for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your reporter was Charlie Bielowski. Special thanks to our feature contributors, 8 O'Clock Buzz host Brian Standing, Harry Richardson, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. Additional thanks to Bill Kingsbury for website production. Victor Calzoni engineered the show tonight. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Shally Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Have a great night.